We're in the middle of a hydrogen power craze, but will the bubble burst and taxpayers be left with the bill? This is Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land and water. I'm Glenn Wheeler. This is episode 253, brought to you with listener support. Become a patron at patreon.com slash Matters. Later in the program, we'll talk to the journalists bringing us the best coverage of hydrogen power proposals. That's Joan Baxter, who writes for the Halifax Examiner. We'll hear from her about the hastily approved Bearhead and Everwind projects. This despite many questions about the feasibility of this untested form of energy production, one with its own environmental drawbacks and serious inefficiencies. On both sides of the Gulf of St. Lawrence, it's Mi'kmaq people who will feel firsthand the environmental impact of these projects shoved on our land without our consent. In Nova Scotia, the Mi'kmaq Rights Initiative has spoken out against the possible loss of traditional land around the Kansas Strait development area. In Newfoundland, unfortunately, Mi'kmaq leaders, both in Halibu and in many of the community bands, have sold out to World Energy GH2, leaving individual indigenous people to try and protect the Port-au-Port Peninsula. That's hard work as a group of land defenders from the peninsula are finding out. They were back in court in Cornerbrook late last week, fighting an injunction obtained by World Energy GH2, banning protests at the development site. Though the land defenders haven't had a chance to argue against the injunction, it remains in place until at least the next court date in August. That's the upshot of last week's appearance before Justice George Murphy, where the land defenders were represented by a lawyer from Ontario named Glenn Bogue, who goes by the name Spirit Warrior. We pick up the story with Sheila Hinks and Zeta Hinks. Sheila and Zeta, uh, just fill us in on what happened in court uh, yesterday. Well, Glenn, this is how it went yesterday. We thought when we went in yesterday that there was going to be a hearing about the injunction. When we got there, when the judge came out of his his room, he sat down and said it was to set court dates, which baffled us because we thought we were there to continue on with our injunction. We had a lawyer. We had all our paperwork. We had everything ready to go. And we didn't understand why he decided to do that. So you were ready to make your argument on why uh, the injunction should not be imposed and why you should be allowed to have your uh, protest as you were doing before. Exactly. That was our, that was what we were in there for. That's what, so we thought that was going to be the proceedings, but also we did up all our paperwork, all our documents was all brought to the courts on time, delivered Uh, three documents wasn't filed. Judge said, Justice Murphy said it was because it wasn't done properly. It wasn't in order. Uh, we thought we had it properly done. But he's, in his eye, it wasn't. Now, if you had been allowed to make your argument, what would the argument have been? Well, the argument would have been 
that WGH2 and our government is doing contracting work, putting up windmills on the Port-au-Port Peninsula, which belongs to the native people. It's on unceded land. There was never a treaty signed with our government in Newfoundland or Canada stating that it belonged to them. So in our view, uh, World Energy GH2 has no right to be here. There's a report uh, this morning on Friday, May 5th by Diane Crocker on the Saltwire uh, site. Uh, she has a report on the um, the case yesterday, and it seems like the judge was not that sympathetic to your lawyer, uh, Glenn Bogue, who goes by the name Spirit Warrior. And I guess at some point, uh, the judge um, cut him off. He was he was there by phone, your lawyer, and at a certain point, uh, Judge Murphy. Uh, put him on mute so he couldn't uh, talk anymore. Tell us about that point in the proceedings yesterday. Well, when when Judge Murphy started talking about uh, the dates, that he wanted to do the dates to continue this court case, uh, our lawyer, he introduced himself, uh, the AG of Canada introduced themselves, and the AG of Newfoundland introduced themselves. So then our lawyer went in, started the conversation with the judge about UNDRIP and about our Indigenous rights. And he was asking, uh, the judge was asking our lawyer, who was he defending? And he said he wasn't defending, he was defending every individual. And it seemed like the expression, I, because I, you see from the judge's face, he was not very pleased with that. Uh, he said to Mr. Bogue that it wasn't it, that issue right now. He had no authority over that issue right now. It was something else that had to be done. And, and of course, Spirit Warrior, Warrior, our lawyer, he continued on to ask the questions and the judge put him on mute. Based on uh, what you saw yesterday in court, um, how likely is it that uh, Judge Murphy will would rule in your favor on the issue of Indigenous rights? Um, it, ha- it didn't go so well uh, yesterday, it sounds like. And of course, we know about Judge Murphy from other court cases in uh, in Labrador involving Indigenous people. H- how do you feel about that? Do you think you're going to get uh, the kind of judgment you want out of Judge Murphy? No. And in our opening statements we had prepared for yesterday, we did ask him to, we were going to ask him to rec- recuse himself because of Muskrat Falls, because he did, he did that to the people, the Indigenous people in Labrador. He also put a, a, a grandmother, I think she was 81, in jail, an Inuit grandmother. So it goes to show right there, it showed us from the beginning, when WGH2 went to Judge Murphy for this case, for to file this injunction, I, I think they did so because he did that to the people of Labrador. But do we know that... Uh... Do we know that uh, World Energy GH2 knew which judge they were getting, or they found out when you, the same time you found out when Judge Murphy ended up in the court, that was the judge assigned that day? But what we, what 
what we don't understand is why would they go to a Supreme Court judge to ask for an injunction? Okay. Why couldn't they go to a provincial court judge? Our concern is Justice Murphy, if he can give uh, an opinion, an, uh, an unbiased opinion, uh, he's a well-informed person and he has knowledge of all circumstances, including the judicial processes and the nature of the judging. Can he conclude a bias, like conscious or unconscious? That's our biggest fear of it. I suppose Judge Murphy would say that, uh, you know, he has the law in front of him and he's going to decide it based on the law of Canada at this time. And even though he might agree or not agree with personally with the law of Canada, as a judge, he has to impose the law of Canada. And the law of Canada says that World Energy GH2 could come and get the injunction and the laws it is means that he has to give them the injunction. I suppose that's what Judge Murphy might say. We don't know for sure, but that's what he might say if he would, if we could ask. If we could have asked, but we didn't get the opportunity to do anything of that nature yesterday. Hmm. No. And I, I even got up and asked him because when uh, Mr. Skinner, the lawyer for two, mm-hmm. uh, said he'd like to have the injunction to stay, to continue, I was kind of baffled because I thought we were going to continue on with this conversation and try to, to figure out a, a, some sort of a, a agreement. And the judge just said, no, he said that he said the injunction will continue. And I said, well, right now, our watershed is protected by the government. It's been it's accepted. So why do we need the injunction when they know they can't travel that local road anymore? Because of that, because of the government's agreement with us that it is a protected watershed. Mm. And he just, you know what he said to me? He just said to me, he said, we'll call your government and got up and left. Going by what happened yesterday, it's um, it doesn't seem like Judge Murphy is uh, is sympathetic to the to the argument about uh, Indigenous rights. So I wonder, would there be an alternative uh, way to do the case where it's more about um, your right to uh, protest? Uh, you were just there with your signs and they had these, uh, they blame you for that damage to the uh, equipment, of which there was no evidence, no investigation. So I wonder, uh, is there um, a different approach to the case that uh, that might uh, be more access- successful with Judge Murphy than the than the Indigenous rights uh, argument? Well, right now, this is our next step. We're going to the Court of Appeal, and we're going to take it from there and see where it's going to take us. We know our Indigenous rights. We know about UNDRIP. Uh, in the court yesterday, we had the AG from uh, Ottawa and Newfoundland. And they refer to Section 35 of the, of the constitutional questions, which protect Indigenous peoples, their way of life, their land, and their water. So uh, you're going to the Court of Appeal of Newfoundland and Labrador to ask them to, um, to uh, what, to review uh, Judge Murphy's decision yesterday? Exactly. Yes, we are. And do you think that will happen before... August the 1st or the August the 1st date with Judge Murphy will come first? Well, we're planning on having our information submitted by Tuesday. I think it takes 10 days to get it to go through before they come back with a decision. I see. So you're going to be busy between uh, now and uh, I guess you'll be doing some work on the weekend, uh, it sounds like, on this this matter. 
we've we've been working since day one. The paperwork, the documents, the phone calls, the emails. Like I'm we're just everyday women. We're just homebodies. Uh I'm a fisherman. Zita works away. She goes back and forth for work. Like we're we're all doing this because of our, our indigenous background. We want to prove to the government that they cannot, cannot come on the Port of Port Peninsula and assume this belongs to them. They cannot do this. They have uh, World Energy GH2 has no social license. We have documents. We have petitions. And it seems to me they don't even want to acknowledge that. So what I don't understand what is going on with our government. Uh, I can't get it. We don't understand it as a people, everyday people. We don't know. But I realized one thing along the way. It make, made us a stronger people. It made us appreciate more of our, our indigenous heritage, our way of life. United. Yeah, we, we united and we're stronger every day because of this. Well, Sheila and Zita, you're, uh, you're working hard on this and um, it's very important to people in Port of Port and, and all, I guess all indigenous people in the province. So good luck and keep us posted. We will. And thank you so much thank for listening you. to us. We were speaking with Sheila Hinks and Zita Hinks, land defenders from the Port of Port Peninsula. Now to Nova Scotia where the province has fast-tracked two hydrogen projects, despite questions about where the green energy to power them will come from, and doubts about the viability of this new technology. UK-based industry analyst Michael Liebrick has calculated that the technology is only 20% efficient. You need those huge windmills to make the power to produce hydrogen, which has to be turned into ammonia for shipment. Then transported by diesel-powered ships and turned from ammonia back into hydrogen. Politicians in Newfoundland and Nova Scotia don't seem to know or care about the shortcomings of hydrogen. Nor do most journalists who've been covering hydrogen as a good news story. Joan Baxter is one of the exceptions, writing critically about the subject for the Halifax Examiner. We asked her about the latest developments in Nova Scotia. I'd say it's actually quite hard to keep up because it's it's um there's been a I'd call it almost like a hydrogen rush in Nova Scotia in the last two years. Um, we've gone from zero to suddenly having two uh, big approved green hydrogen and ammonia projects in the province of Nova Scotia. Uh, one is one proposed by Everwind Fuels, and they want to produce eventually by 2026 a million million tons of ammonia and ship it to Europe and we have the one that was recently approved at Bearhead it was an old LNG fuels terminal on the Canso Strait very very close to where the Everwind plant will be and they want to produce two million tons of ammonia for export to Europe and the simple thing is they're they're claiming that these projects are for green hydrogen and that's green ammonia. Now, if it's going to be green, it has to be produced with 100% renewable fuels. Nova Scotia is really struggling to get off coal. It doesn't look like we're even going to make our target of being 
80% renewables for domestic use in Nova Scotia by 2030. Mm. So this, uh, this is coal-fired hydrogen power. So this makes it more brown hydrogen rather than, uh, than green not, hydrogen. They claim it's going to be green. And that means they're going to be producing it using renewables. And we ask, and we ask, and we ask them again, how are you going to make it green? Where are you going to get all that renewable energy when Nova Scotia doesn't even have enough for its own domestic use? And they are always vague. And they say, we're going to have onshore and offshore wind facilities that they're going to put up. Well, when you start to do the calculations, of how much wind energy they would need to make truly green hydrogen and ammonia, which is what they say they're going to do. Um, for example, you would need just for Everwind, just for the million tons, you would need to have 330 giant wind turbines in Nova Scotia, close to where the plant is in Eastern Nova Scotia. And that is 30 more turbines than we have in all of Nova Scotia right now producing commercial wind energy. Mm. So you ask yourself, how are they going to do that? That's a huge amount of land disturbance, first of all, in what is an area with, as the Mi'kmaq Rights Initiative has pointed out, there's a lot of moose, there's a lot of game, there's a lot of fish for them. That's a relatively healthy, except for clear cutting, it's a relatively healthy, unsettled area, which the Mi'kmaq use for hunting and fishing. Mm. You go in there and put up 330 giant wind turbines. That's basically an industrial park. Yes. And uh, and these things are 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 unfolding these plans at a very quick pace. Um, the time between um, proposal and approval is like uh, 40 days for uh, for Bear Island, which I guess is uh, quicker than you can get a specialist appointment with a doctor in Nova Scotia these days. So uh very, uh, very fast, despite the uh, concerns. Much quicker than I can just tell you. It's much quicker than we can get a doctor's appointment. Uh, well, we have two. We have the Bearhead project and the Everwind project, and both of them were approved in 40 days. And for some reason, even though we've never had one of these plants in the province before, the province has designated these as a class one environmental assessment, which is the quickest easiest environmental assessment. Uh, a class two involves, can be up to two years, it involves a full environmental assessment report. And it takes much longer for a minister to decide on the project and demands much more information. These two projects, and they're huge, one did not address where they're going to get all the energy from to feed these plants. And two went through the class one environmental assessment, which gave the public 30 days to come up with comments on these massive proposals, which are hundreds of pages long. Uh, the Mi'kmaq Rights Initiative commented on the Bearhead proposal and just said, this is simply not enough time for us. Um, where's the archeological survey? We do not agree with the findings of you, this consultant <laughs> that put in this proposal that said, this was not a, a heavily used area in pre-settlement times. We disagree with that. Uh, they're concerned about the habitat. They're concerned about the 30-day consulting period they had. The Ecology Action Center in Nova Scotia also complained about the 30 days to, to comment on a proposal that's hundreds and hundreds of pages long. And they pointed out that, <clears throat> excuse me, even for a protected wilderness area, 
the public has 60 days to comment, but these mm -hmm. ones were approved within 40 days. There were a lot of comments, even from Department of Environment saying, you know, there's a problem with how much water they're planning to use. Uh, there's a problem with where are they going to get their energy? Those questions were not answered. But the, Nova Scotia's government, provincial government is gung-ho on green hydrogen. They seem not to know much about it. And they have even changed a lot of our legislation to make sure that they're enabling it. There's been very little critical coverage of these projects. Um, it's complicated. As you know, the media are fewer and farther between these days. And these companies put out a press release. And that's what gets reported. So there's been very, very little public scrutiny of these projects. And the acceptance of the projects, the political, obviously the politicians are endorsing these projects and therefore giving them very little scrutiny even themselves. Yes. And in the case of the Bear Head project, there were six pages, single spaced, of very, very strong and good criticisms from the Guysborough Inshore Fishermen's Association who fish on the other side of the Canso Strait on mainland Nova Scotia. Mm -hmm. Lobster and all sorts, it's extremely rich fishing ground. And they were extremely concerned that they hadn't even been consulted. Mm -hmm. And then they were confronted with hundreds of pages of this proposal, which totally ignored any of their concerns from the removal of eelgrass, which is an extremely important habitat for crustaceans, and also very good at sequestering carbon, to the fact that there's going to be huge tankers coming in and out of that strait that will really affect them. I mean, again, this, this feels very much like a speculative kind of industry at this point. We know very little about it. As Michael Liebrich has pointed out, the viable applications for hydrogen are quite limited at this point. It's probably never going to comprise more than 10 or 15% of our total energy sources by 2050. And it, there are so many obstacles. And it also gets very murky when you're talking about hydrogen because green hydrogen, which is what they say they want to produce, of course, you can't transport it in a ship. So you have to turn it into ammonia. Now, is that ammonia going to be used for fertilizer? That's what it looks like right now. Or is it going to be transformed back into hydrogen and they used as energy in Europe? Nobody knows, but it has to be shipped somehow and that has to go as ammonia. So there's so many variables and unanswered questions. So there's all sorts of stuff happening here, which makes someone who is naturally skeptical of some of the entrepreneurs behind this stuff, especially when they come from private equity companies or from, in the case of Bearhead, it's actually owned by a very big petroleum pipeline company out of Texas that makes you wonder if they aren't just kind of some kind of, I'm not saying they are, but there's, you always want to ask, you know, are these climate change profiteers? Mm. Well, and, and let's uh, talk about that a minute. Uh, this, uh, Hydrogen uh, being talked about in these projects is destined for Germany for the most part. Uh, Olaf Scholz, the chancellor, was in Newfoundland last fall for a big announcement. The Germans, of course, are not uh, on the hook for any of this stuff. If it if it fails, I mean, they don't care. They'll use something else, I guess. But uh, it looks like we, the taxpayer in Canada, might be on the hook. And um, you mentioned in your story some of the uh, friendly uh 
tax uh, arrangements uh, to uh, to help these uh, hydrogen developers. Uh, tell us about that part of the story. Well, with the federal budget last year, there is a 40% tax incentive, incentive that is, which means that you don't have to pay 40% of your taxes for this kind of project. There's also, for example, Everwind is applied to the Federal Strategic Innovation Fund, which is billions of dollars um, for financial assistance to build this plant. And of course, they, they have to because they also have to find the energy source. And if they're, are they going to build all those onshore and offshore turbines themselves? That's very expensive. And so they need a lot of money. Now, I'm not sure that they're going to find investors who are willing to take this gamble at this point. And the only people who it seems who are willing to take the gamble right now are our governments. And so as Dr. Larry Hughes, who's a professor at Dalhousie University, said to me, the way we're going, one, we don't know where they're going to get their energy. If they can't get the energy that they need to make the green hydrogen and ammonia, then are we going to be left holding the bag again? Are there going to be a lot of these white elephants hanging around? I mean, it's nothing new in Nova Scotia. We've certainly had enough of those kinds of projects over the years. Um, so those are the questions that are still being asked. And I, it would be just nice to see them being asked a little bit more by um, those in political office, but where we're headed with this. And are we, is this really the way Nova Scotia wants to go? Do we want to allow other people to put up all of these turbines, wind turbines um, in kind of very fragile ecosystems to produce ammonia for export when mm. we don't have renewable energy to use here in our own domestic market? These are big questions. Nova Scotia is still using about 40% of our energy supply is still coal. Wow. We have a long way to go to get rid of that and replace it with renewable energy. So if we are putting up these, if we are going to get big wind turbines, then surely the priority should be for domestic use. Joan Baxter, our writer for the Halifax Examiner. We reached out to Doug Skinner, lawyer for World Energy GH2, but we did not receive a reply. Before we go, a note to Halibu members that the next meeting of Chief and Council is this coming Saturday, May 13th at 10 a.m. Newfoundland time. You can attend in person or via the live stream. The Mi'kmaq Matters team is producer Allison Baker, correspondent Greg Janes, and researcher Hilary McGinnis. Look for us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and introducing our new website, Mi'kmaqMatters.com. This is Glenn Wheeler saying, Emsa Nogamah.